Welcome back, U.S. History. Today, we're going to be talking about World War I, which is fitting since we just left off with imperialism. So remember, the whole idea of imperialism was taking over other areas for various reasons, and World War I is a great example of this, because we have all these different countries that are taking over because of various reasons, just like imperialism. So, you will probably hear a lot of crossovers here, and I'm sure I will hit you over the head with them. So, anyhow, let's get going with this. So, World War One. Alright. Hopefully you remember a lot of this from, like, world history stuff. But don't worry, I'm going to go over a few things. So, the whole, you know, kind of war stuff, you know, of World War One started with just kind of two countries, Austria, Hungary, and Serbia. And the big reason was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And remember, he was the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. And this young Serbian uh, Gavarillo Princip, part of the terrorist organization known as the Black Hand, assassinated him. Well, this caused the alliance system to come into play. And there was two main alliances during this time. There was the Triple Entente. Oh, it is French, so I use my French accent. But anyhow, it is... France, Russia, and Great Britain. Notice how the United States is not in there. Spoiler alert. Anyhow, um, they'll join later on. Anyhow, the Triple Alliance was the other one, and that was Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. And I say Italy in a kind of a strange voice because Italy is a flip-flopper. They start off on the side of the Triple Alliance and then switch over to the Triple Entente a little bit later on. So... Hopefully that is just a little refresh of what happened because all these little countries in big countries all started to join into war and then all of a sudden it became a war that was mostly the world, also known as the World War, but at the time it was known as the Great War or the War to End All Wars. Anyhow, so that's what's going on in the world. Now, since this is U.S. history, we're going to be talking primarily about what is going on in the United States. So some Americans felt personally involved, even though the United States at this time was not involved. Later on, we will, 1917. So, anyhow, more than a third of the nation's 92 million um, immigrants, um, or immigrants or children of immigrants, I should say, um, during this time. So, a third of these 92 millions, which is like a little over 30 million, um, were actually German and Irish. A fourth German and an eighth Irish. And both of these groups didn't really like Britain. So, obviously, Germany's at war with them, and that whole Irish independence thing is going on. So... We have a good chunk of the immigrants living in the United States that are saying, hey, we're all about the Triple Alliance. Then we have other immigrants that are all about the Triple Entente. Then we have other people just like, hey, can't we just stay neutral? So, um, for the most part, even though we have people that are on the Triple Alliance side, you know, it's common history to say that mostly America opposed the Central Powers, also known as the Triple Alliance. Um, a lot of people did feel a connection to Britain. Remember, this kind of goes back to our imperialism, nationalism unit. Remember, we kind of used to be part of the British culture. I mean, we have a lot of similar cultural heritage and ideas. We have shared history. We have shared literature. We have a lot of things in common with them. All right, Germany, not so much. On top of that, Germany was controlled by some guy named Kaiser Wilhelm II, and he was, you know, an emperor. And that's kind of the opposite of democracy because they're like a dictatorship. So our, just, our way of doing things does not exactly go hand in hand with the Germans, but it is kind of similar to the British, which makes it a lot easier 
to go along with the British. Now, if you remember back in our imperialism unit, we also mentioned that the media played a big role with the Spanish-American War. Well, guess what? We're going to see that again here in World War One. So, the newspapers or media would describe the Germans not as men marching, but as a force of nature, like a tidal wave, an avalanche, or a river flooding its banks. Very dramatic, as you could tell from my voice. So, because of all this, it painted the Germans in a much darker light than maybe they deserve to be in most of the time. Um, it would talk about the Germans that killed, they killed civilians and destroyed libraries, cathedrals, and an even entire towns in Belgium and in France. All right, most of these reports and these terrible atrocities were false. I'm not saying there wasn't some maybe grain of truth here and there or whatever, but on the whole, it was very much exaggerated. And remember, that's our idea. This is called propaganda. Hopefully you remember this from past years, but anyhow... Um, a lot of this propaganda helped, and most of it from the British, helped to influence the Americans to join the war effort. And just to give you a definition reminder of propaganda, in case you forgot, propaganda, information intended to sway public opinion that spread throughout the United States. So basically it's information used to kind of get people to think one way or the other. Now, America did not initially want to go to war. Even though we maybe sided with the British, we didn't really want to go to war. We wanted to stay neutral during this. We did not want to get involved, so we declared neutrality immediately. Now, a lot of people can argue that maybe this wasn't just like, well, we don't like war. It was maybe a little bit more to do with trade, because if we side with one country, the other country might not want to trade with us. So the United States trade from 1897 to 1914 had gone from 700 million in 1897 up to 3.5 billion in 1914. And once war broke out, all these countries, they need goods. <laughs> Guess where they're going to go for those goods? To us. So it was in our best interest to keep trading with everyone. However, there were some issues with trading. The German U-boats kind of started to sink some different boats and make it very difficult for us to travel, as well as British blockades. So all this hampered our ability to trade. Now, um, reminder, as we said, that we kind of favored Britain. Well, a majority of big businesses and big business owners had ties to Britain and trade partnerships and all that stuff. So they put some pressure, just like in the Spanish-American War, uh, big businesses put pressure on America to kind of maybe side with Britain in the long run or the triple entente. Oh. So, anyhow, during this time and leading up to America's eventual, you know, entering into war, a group of big businesses came together and formed a group known as the National Security League. And this was in 1914, right at the start of World War One. And this basically was set up to promote patriotic education and national sentiment and service among people of the United States. Now, the reason for all this is they want people proud of their country and all about their country. So if their country needs them to, I don't know, oh, say fight a war, the people will be ready to fight said war. By late summer of 1915, leaders had persuaded the government to set up army training camps. So this group was pretty influential. 
And then by 1916, we were steadily increasing our arms uh, forces. So some of it was them, and there was other factors as well. So Now, granted, not everyone felt this way. Some people just wanted peace. We call them hippies, but that's maybe a little bit later on. Um, so give you an, an example of some of the peaceful movements from this time period. Protesting women during this time dressed in black and carried a banner of a dove, the universal symbol of peace. I don't know if it's universal, but I think of it as peace. Marched down New York City's Fifth Avenue, you know, basically declaring that they wanted peace. Also, November 1915, a group of social reformers founded the American Union Against Militarism. And the name kind of says it themselves, against militarism. And remember, social reformers. We went over this already with... Uh, some of our earlier units and talking about urban reform and, you know, kind of that industrialization time period. So anyhow, this American Union Against Militarism, uh, they did such activities including lobbying people, publishing different, uh, uh, pub, uh, like, booklets and so forth, and carrying on lecture campaigns and uh, also establishing the Civil Liberties Bureau. So there was two kind of big uh, competing groups during this time. And all this went on, and then all of a sudden this thing called the Lusitania happened. And the Lusitania was a British luxury liner, which is a nice fancy way of saying a cruise ship. And the last voyage of this Lusitania was uh, going from New York to Britain. And now, just to preface, spoiler alert, it's going to sink. Last voyage. Okay, you got it. Anyhow, so to preface this, when you would get on a boat that was going to go by an area that was fighting um, or war was going on, you would see the following sign, or well, at least I'm going to read it to you. So anyway, what I'm going to read to you, this was common in American harbors right next to the boarding station. Okay, ready? Notice! There was an exclamation mark, sorry. Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies. That the zone of war includes the waters, the waters, sorry, adjacent to the British Isles. That in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters. And the travelers sailing in the war zone on the ship of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. This is from the Imperial German Embassy and posted in Washington, D.C., April 22nd, 1915. So, bottom line, hey, war's going on. If you take a boat and you go through this area, you might get shot at. And people who boarded this boat, uh, that happened on May 17th, 1915. German U-boat U-20 spotted the Lusitania and sent off a torpedo and boom, there was an explosion. Now, at the time during this, um, any kind of ship that saw a U-boat could either run or try to ram them. There's a movie called uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and there's actually a scene where they ram a U-boat. Anyhow, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. Sorry. So anyhow, U-20 fired this one torpedo. However, there was two explosions. Conspiracy theory? Probably. All right. Anyhow, Lusitania got hit. We'll talk about that second explosion in a second. Uh, got hit, and there was a big explosion. Lusitania started to list or lean 15 degrees to the starboard or right side. And because it was leaning at such an angle, it was very difficult to drop the lifeboats. Now, they had 48 life lifeboats, but only six of them were dropped, and the boat sank in 18 minutes. And it was the second worst maritime disaster of all time. Um, the only one worse than it was the Titanic. 
1,198 passengers died, including 124 Americans. Now, why, oh why, you must be saying, did the Germans attack the Lusitania? This is a cruise ship, people on vacation. Why on earth are we trying to kill them? Well, it was targeted because the Germans believed that there was some weapons like ammunition and bombs and so forth that were in the bottom of the ship that the Americans had hid there and were sending to the British. <gasps> America would never do... Oh, yeah, actually, that turned out to be true. Uh, we did some diving expeditions and turned out that that was exactly what happened. So anyhow, that's what most likely caused the secondary explosion is because the first one set off a chain reaction and then the ammunition blew up. So anyhow, that's most likely what happened. Well anyhow, after the Lusitania, America was not happy, but this was right around election time. And it was uh, President Woodrow Wilson's re-election um, and he wanted to be reelected, so he ran on a ticket of he kept us out of war he says hey vote for me i didn't send any of your sons or daughters to die in war and he did win by a narrow victory and he was criticized for not taking a stronger stance against germany don't worry he'll do some stuff later on and if you remember mckinley was hearing a lot of negative feedback from the press about his same stance on the spanish-american war Okay, so further going down the ride. So we got the Lusitania. That's made America mad. We have some pressures in America as far as National Security League, American Union against militarism. But they don't want to go to war. So we have some tension going on. Lusitania get, you know, sinks. And then January 31st, 1917, the Germans ended the Sussex Pledge. And the Sussex Pledge basically was um, all about restrictions on submarine warfare. So the Germans said, hey, look, we will warn ships before attacking with U-boats. Well, now they're no longer doing that. Um, that's what the Sussex Pledge said. So now that it's gone, they're just going to shoot and attack anyone they want without warning them first. Which, you know, for the Germans to do that in the first place, um, you know, gave away a lot of the element of surprise and those kind of things. So um, now they're just saying, look, hey, it's war. I'm going to sink stuff if I want to sink stuff. And just to give you an idea of how much of that stuff that those German U-boats were sinking... All right, there were only about 375 U-boats in World War I. And just to give you an idea of what they sank, 188 U.S. ships. Whoa, that's a lot, but that pales in comparison to the next number. The British lost 3,703 ships. Norway was the next closest with 799, followed by the French, 764. Italy, 680, because remember, they were the flip-floppers. Now, granted, these are not all the ships that were sunk. Okay, um, but you know, there's 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 even more than that. I just kind of picked four of the top countries and the United States. But just to give you an idea, 375 U-boats sank, you know, somewhere around over 6,000 ships, which is just absolutely ridiculous. So anyhow, America were upset about the Sussex Pledge going away. They're no longer warning us. We didn't like the Lusitania. So then uh, the United States reacts to this whole Sussex Pledge being over. And on February 3rd, 1917, the United States ends all diplomatic relationships with Germany. A few weeks later, Wilson asked Congress for permission to arm American merchant ships, saying, hey, look, if we got boats out there, we better protect them. And then finally, strike number three for the Germans, the British intercept a telegram uh, from Arthur Zimmerman, who was the German foreign secretary at the time. And this telegram that we that 
they intercepted and showed to America, uh, basically made an offer to Mexico to declare war on the United States. And if they, if Mexico was to do such a thing, Germany would reward Mexico. Mexico is fighting the United States. I'm not really sure how they're going to reward them. for. Anyhow, they would reward Mexico with land in the southwest area of the United States. Now, America saw this and we were like, what? Uh, yeah, we were not happy. And I'm just going to kind of read you a little excerpt from this telegram. We shall endeavor, meaning Germany, shall endeavor to keep the United States neutral or out of war. In the event of this not succeeding, this neutrality not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance. Let's make war together, make peace together, and Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Yeah, so we heard this and we were like, no, last straw for you. So America is getting ready to go to war. Now, just to give you a little pause here for a second. During this time in early 1917 when all this is going on, Russia had very heavy losses and had their own little Russian revolution and dropped out of the war. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because that turned World War I more so into a one-front war. So if we boil it down to easy numbers, say that Germany had 100 troops, well, they would have to put 50 of them on the east side of Germany to fight the Russians and another 50 on the west side to fight the French and the British. Well, that made them 50% strong on each side, roughly for the sake of argument. Well, now that Russia is gone, they can move all their troops over 100% of their troops to fight against France and Britain. So this made the war a little bit more stagnant even. So it was kind of a necessity for America to kind of come in here at the end of the war and provide the final push to defeat the Germans. So... Um, even though the National Security League, founded in 1914, had started to get the United States ready for war and we had been building up our armed services, we were not ready for war when we did declare war on April 6th, 1917. We only had about 100,000 troops, okay? So, and, and these troops um, weren't really, you know, we couldn't even send all of them. So we sent initially 14,500. We sent naval support, supplies, arms, and around $3 billion in loans. But we need to get moving on this. So we instituted a draft or the Selective Service Act. And this was in May of 1917. And it authorized the draft of young men for military service or mandatory military service. So uh, November 1918, 24 million men had registered for the draft. 3 million of them were picked and they served in the AEF or American Expeditionary Force. We had 11,000 women volunteer as nurses, drivers, and clerks. 14,000 more women served abroad as civilians working for the government or for private agencies during this time. And these troops that we had sent over, um, you know, they had some training. They, uh, they trained in the bayonet, which is the name of that kind of knife or sword that you put on the end of the gun. They were trained in throwing grenades, which Americans were actually really good at because of the great American pastime, baseball. That was me swinging a fake at. I bet you couldn't even tell. Uh, they taught them how to uh, dig trenches because trench warfare for World War I, uh, using gas masks. Um, but most of the guys that we shipped over there really went out without extensive training overall. And now, 
if you want to know more about the fighting and some of the weaponry and battles and all that stuff of World War One, I, I definitely encourage you to look into my World History podcast about World War One. I'm just not going into it very much with U.S. history because... Well, the United States was only really involved for kind of one year. We were like the cavalry. We showed up at the end of the movie and we're like, yay, we're here to help. And everyone else was like, really? You guys come at the very end? It would be like if I was playing basketball and I didn't do anything the entire entire game. And then at the very like last second, I came in and shot a three-point. And I was like, yeah, I'm the best. And everyone's like, yeah, well, we've been sweating out here for hours. And you do one thing and think you're awesome. So uh, and just to kind of speak to that note, um, the... <laughs> The, our allies, some of the troops referred to bombs that didn't go off or duds. They referred to them as Wilsons, as in Woodrow Wilson. So anyhow, uh, going back to the fighting here. The Germans, now that we're only fighting a one-front war, we're actually doing pretty well. So the United States comes in, like I said, at the end of the movie, at the end of you know, the cavalry, and we're basically here to stop them. So we kind of provided the final push to defeat the Germans. And I'm kind of hoping all this sounds familiar with you know what we talked about with uh, World War One and world history and so forth. And like I said, please take a look at that. So anyhow, the, the war comes to an end and we have uh, an armistice or basically a ceasefire. The fighting stopped and ceased between Germany and France. Um, and they arrest their allies on November the 11th, 1918 at 11 a.m. So sometimes commonly known as the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. The war ended, or at least a ceasefire, you know, the war stopped. And officially the war did end with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, and that was June 28th, 1919. All right, now we're going to pause there for a little bit. I'm going to talk about this piece and the kind of stopping of the war in the next part of this podcast. And it's going to be a pretty short one, but uh, I, I do want to kind of separate it up as we're at 21 minutes here roughly. So anyhow, um, stay tuned. There's a little bit more. <laughs> 